This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It's bound to be one of the most sensational criminal trials of 2021. British socialite Ghislaine Maxwell, Jeffrey Epstein's former girlfriend, will be tried on sex trafficking charges. Maxwell played a critical role in helping Epstein to identify, befriend, and groom minor victims for abuse. In some cases, Maxwell participated in the abuse herself. As alleged, Maxwell and Epstein had a method. We have been discreetly keeping tabs on Maxwell's whereabouts as we worked this investigation, and more recently we learned she had slithered away to a gorgeous property in New Hampshire, continuing to live a life of privilege while her victims live with the trauma inflicted upon them years ago. In announcing the charges, acting U.S. Attorney Audrey Strauss and Assistant FBI Director Bill Sweeney painted a grim picture of Maxwell's alleged role in Epstein's sex trafficking ring. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at McCarter in English. Bob, tell us about the charges against Maxwell. Ghislaine Maxwell was charged in a 17-page indictment. She faces up to 35 years in federal prison, and she's basically charged with aiding and abetting and assisting Jeffrey Epstein, who has since committed suicide while he was awaiting trial for his own sex trafficking charges in luring minors to Jeffrey Epstein's faraway island in the Caribbean and other places around the world so that he could use them for sex trafficking purposes. Maxwell's defense has said that Maxwell has become a substitute for Epstein. So how does Maxwell distance herself from Epstein during trial? Well, that's going to be the challenge for Ghislaine Maxwell and her lawyers at trial. She's a socialite daughter of a British publishing tycoon, Robert Maxwell, and basically has now been linked to Epstein in his efforts to lure underage girls into his orbit. And it's alleged that she was a key participant in that. In in some cases, finding the girls for Epstein, and in other cases, luring them to participate in these sex trafficking acts. So the challenge for her is going to be to try to distance herself from the acts of Epstein, which will essentially be unchallenged and somehow convince jurors that she was not a knowing accomplice in this type of criminal activity. Of course, a defendant has the Fifth Amendment right not to take the stand. But in order to prove that defense, does she almost have to take the stand? Taking the stand is always a risky proposition. And I think in this particular case, it will be especially challenging My guess is her lawyers will keep her off the stand because prosecutors will have so much ammunition to try to cross-examine her with to prove that she knew exactly what Epstein was doing and was a key component of his ability to try to find these young girls and lure them into his world of sex trafficking. Maxwell is being held in a New York jail pending trial after a judge called her a flight risk. Now, as far as the biggest criminal trial involving business in 2021, former Goldman Sachs Managing Director Roger Ng will be tried in Brooklyn Federal Court in March on charges of bribery and money laundering. In the biggest foreign bribery case in U.S. enforcement history, Goldman agreed to pay billions of dollars in criminal and civil penalties to the U.S. in October for its role in the scandal as part of a deferred prosecution agreement. Tell us about the case. Roger Ng will be tried on March 8th on charges he broke U.S. anti-bribery laws by helping 
a cabal led by Malaysian financier Joe Lowe steal billions of dollars from Malaysian state investment fund 1MDB and kick back some of that money to officials. Now, Ng is the first person to go to trial in the U.S. on that scandal, but Goldman Sachs has already agreed to pay billions of dollars in civil and criminal penalties for its involvement. And one of the keys to that trial is going to be Ng's former boss, Tim Lester, who has already pleaded guilty and is expected to testify against him at the trial. Now, when you have a cooperator like that on the stand, the defense will usually tell the jury, you can't trust this testimony because he got a deal to testify. But don't juries usually believe these cooperating witnesses in most cases? Yeah, cooperating witnesses are absolutely integral to most complex financial fraud prosecutions that are brought by the Department of Justice. These cases are just too complicated for prosecutors to bring to jurors based solely on documents, which can often be ambiguous or difficult to understand. And so what we're seeing in this case is not at all unusual, where prosecutors have cut a deal with somebody who they view as less culpable, but still involved in the criminal conspiracy in order to take jurors by the hand and lead them through this complex financial fraud. This is somebody who prosecutors will say was an eyewitness and a participant in this activity and will be able to outline for jurors the criminal conduct and the knowing and willful, wrongful nature of the conduct of the defendant, in this case, Roger Ng. How will Goldman's admission of its role in the scandal play into the trial? The government will likely keep the trial primarily focused on the conduct of Roger Ng, but they could call witnesses from Goldman Sachs to talk about the admission by Goldman of its own role in this criminal activity. Elizabeth Holmes, the founder of Theranos, reigned briefly as the world's youngest female self-made billionaire and a Silicon Valley star over her promise to revolutionize blood testing. Holmes will be tried on March 9th for allegedly defrauding investors out of hundreds of millions of dollars. She settled a civil suit with the Securities and Exchange Commission after a deposition in 2017, first broadcast by ABC News. Is a statement... Uh, that Theranos currently offers more than 200 and is ramping up to offer more than 1,000 of the most commonly ordered blood diagnostic tests, all without the need for a syringe. Was that statement correct? Reading it now, I don't think it is. I've been talking with former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at McCarter in English. So, Bob, what do we expect from Holmes' trial? This is going to be one of the most fascinating trials that we're going to see in the upcoming year. Elizabeth Holmes was criminally charged in June of 2018 with defrauding investors following the collapse of her blood testing startup. The central issue in this case is that Holmes promoted a finger prick blood testing machine that was going to absolutely revolutionize healthcare. It was going to replace vials of blood drawn from people in order to run the vast spectrum of blood testing that everybody undergoes when they go to the doctor or at the hospital. And it was going to replace that with only a tiny prick of blood from which all of the same tests could be run. So it was something that attracted the attention of Silicon Valley's most prominent investors and money poured in from all over the world, making Elizabeth Holmes the youngest female self-made billionaire. There's been some speculation that Holmes might try to push the blame onto her former boyfriend, who was the president of Theranos, and who will be tried in a separate trial after hers. Might that work? 
Well, whenever there are two people involved in a criminal conspiracy, and in this case, as you mentioned, they're not going to trial together, so they'll not be seated next to one another. These are going to be separate trials. It's often the strategy of the defense to try to shift the blame onto the other individual. And so in this case, it wouldn't be surprising if she does try to blame the ex-president of the company, who at one time had been her boyfriend, for the criminal charges here. And it essentially comes down to a question of whether she was knowingly exaggerating and lying to raise money on what was something that was going to revolutionize the blood testing industry. There's also been some indication that Holmes may try not an insanity defense exactly, but something akin to that. One of the defenses that we are seeing Elizabeth Holmes' lawyers floating now is the possibility that she has some type of mental disease or defect or other mental condition that will act as a defense to her intent to commit this crime. But the problem that they're going to face is that she had presented herself to the world as somebody who was extremely well-educated, self-possessed, and affluent, somebody who was in charge of this revolutionary company, and to now say that she had some kind of a mental defect that they say may be based upon some type of sexual abuse at an earlier stage in her life may be an uphill climb. Steve Bannon, the former campaign chief for President Trump and White House chief strategist, is scheduled to go on trial in May in federal court in Manhattan over charges connected with his We Build the Wall group. Also going on trial with Bannon are two businessmen and a disabled military veteran. Tell us about the charges. Steve Bannon is set to go to trial on May 24th on charges that he and three other men defrauded donors and laundered money in connection with their group, We Build the Wall, which raised $25 million to fund the private construction of a U.S. border wall. Prosecutors have alleged that Bannon and others used donated funds for lavish personal expenses, despite the fact that they pledged that 100% of these monies would go towards building the wall. The charitable entity raised millions of dollars from small donors all over the country, and the government has alleged that Bannon received $1 million from those proceeds and used them solely for personal use. Before Christmas, President Trump pardoned some of his controversial allies. His former campaign chair, Paul Manafort, his former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, and his longtime friend and confidant, Roger Stone. So this trial could be scuttled if Trump decides to pardon Bannon. There is always the possibility that President Trump could, in his final days in office, pardon Steve Bannon, and that would eliminate the possibility of this trial going forward at all. At this point, there is a Congressman Paul Gozar, a Republican from Arizona, who is urging the president to pardon not only Steve Bannon, but also a local retired Air Force airman who lost both legs and an arm in a 2004 rocket explosion in Iraq and who's considered a war hero by many. In the event that pardons are granted in connection with this case, the federal case would go away. There still could be the possibility of some state attorney general's office taking up this investigation, but at this point, it's been solely handled by the U.S. Attorney's Office, and a pardon would essentially end the case in its tracks. Trial in that case in 2021. President Trump faces a number of legal threats that could heat up once he leaves office and loses the protections of the presidency. But is it highly unlikely that a criminal case against him will be ready to go to trial in 2021? 
there's obviously a great deal of uncertainty about any possible criminal charges that may be brought against President Trump once he leaves office. The most active investigations of which we are aware are the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and the New York Attorney General's Office. But it's highly unlikely that any of those cases, if in fact they materialize into actual criminal charges, would happen in 2021. The one trial we may see in 2021 involving President Trump is the defamation lawsuit brought by New York Advice columnist Jean Carroll, where she accused President Trump of lying when she accused him of raping her in the 1990s. President Trump has said that he has the absolute right to pardon himself. If he does pardon himself, will that face legal challenges? That would only pertain to any potential federal charges being brought against him. And at this point, there's no indication that a Biden Department of Justice would actually pursue criminal charges against President Trump once he leaves office. A pardon will not have any impact on the ongoing investigation by the New York District Attorney or the New York Attorney General's office. So while the pardon would be highly controversial and may be litigated all the way up to the Supreme Court, as a practical matter, it won't likely affect any cases that could actually be brought against the president since those would likely be state charges and a presidential pardon cannot absolve somebody from state criminal liability. Thanks, Bob. That's Robert Mintz, a partner at Carter in English. The federal judiciary and most other federal programs were caught in a political tug of war over what would be included in the $900 billion coronavirus relief plan and a separate $1.4 trillion measure to fund agencies through the end of the fiscal year. And the judiciary did not fare well. Joining me is Bloomberg Law reporter Madison Alder. Madison, what did the judiciary ask for in emergency relief? The judiciary wanted about $37 million in funding that would help them do some of the things that they've kind of had to adopt during the pandemic. Um, they got a little bit of funding in the CARES Act to do some of that work, uh, like moving to you know more IT, but they, they said that they needed more, and they told Congress that they needed this in April. But uh, you know, just like so many federal agencies, the judiciary didn't get that kind of relief in this latest package. Did it get any relief in the latest package? It didn't get any relief for uh, coronavirus. It did get a uh, funding increase uh, for the remainder of the uh, fiscal year 2021. And that funding increase is about 3%. It's still lower than what they had asked for. And they say this is going to be a difficult year for them. But they did get an increase in, in that funding. But as far as the relief that they requested specifically for the pandemic, that wasn't part of this package. Explain what some of the additional costs have been for federal courts during the pandemic. Well, they say some of these additional costs are, you know, defender organizations and courts have needed to do things during the pandemic, like adapting to online ways of doing things that they used to do in person. Uh, so a lot of in-court uh, activities are, are now online. And, you know, they've also had to equip their courthouses to uh, bring people back in safely when they can do that with plexiglass and with all kinds of different filtration systems. So there are additional expenses that they have you know, endured during the pandemic, and they're looking for money to be able to uh, afford that. They have less than they need through September 2021. Has there been any response from the members of Congress or congressional aides about why this happened? Congressional aides say that you know, this funding package didn't have 
uh, any funding for agencies related to the pandemic costs. That that wasn't part of this negotiation. Um, Democrats in, in their bill uh, from October had some funding for the judiciary, but through the negotiation process, uh, that funding just wasn't in this round. And the judiciary said that they're already looking to re-up this request, reevaluate it next year uh, because they, they need this funding. Maddie, where did the court stand? Because there was a time when it seemed like they might be opening back up, and now we've had this renewed surge of COVID. What's happening in the federal courts? So you're right. During the summer, the courts were really opening back up. A lot of them were starting jury trials again, which is, is probably one of the most difficult things courts have had to do is, is, in a lot of cases, completely halt jury trials. Uh, you know, to, because that is the most difficult thing to move to an online environment. Only one court that we know of has done an online or, or virtual jury trial. Um, so that's been the most difficult thing. And and they really started to, across the country, see we'd see more courts doing this, more courts trying it out to bring people into the courts, to keep them socially distanced, to keep them wearing masks and with plexiglass and to try to get this started back up. But with the resurgence in coronavirus, uh, a lot of courts have had to halt these activities again. You know, in, in uh, one of the federal courts in Chicago, for example, we saw uh, a lot of infections happen inside the courthouse and, and they had to shut everything down again and, and halt jury trials, halt in-person activities. Uh, we saw in, in the Eastern District of Texas, there was a case where a trial was going on and, and multiple people, jurors, a lawyer, uh, a court staff member, all came down with with coronavirus. So, um, you know, we saw courts really experiencing what it was like to be operating in person while the virus was still very active. And I think that made a lot of courts uh, kind of take a step back and, uh, you know, go back to where we were before the summer. Um, So right now we're we're kind of at that standstill again. And I think courts are just monitoring the numbers and, and looking for when they can really start to reopen again. I mean, is there any indication of what the backlog of cases is like at this point? A lot of courts have been able to schedule different jury trials. When they were able to open, they were able to put things on the schedule. And for a lot of courts, that has been really crucial because a lot of cases settle before they go to trial. So just putting something on the calendar was helpful for them to get something to settle um, or, you know, to resolve itself. And that significantly reduces the amount of of the backlog, the jury trial backlog that there is. Some courts haven't been able to go that far, though. Some courts have not been able to even put a schedule together because they can't, based on the health situation in their area, they can't feasibly think about getting people into the courtroom in, you know, the next few weeks, which is, you know, how they would create this schedule. So those courts have probably more of of a backlog. But as soon as courts are able to put something on the schedule, it's really helpful because those cases can start to move forward and things can work themselves out. And then it's much less daunting than it looked like beforehand. But, you know, I think really most of the backlog that we're looking at right now is those jury trials. It's, you know, jury trials in a lot of civil cases, but, you know, still some criminal cases in in areas where they haven't been able to schedule things. So, Madison, there are some really high-profile trials coming up in 2021. For example, the trial of Elizabeth Holmes, the former CEO of Theranos, and the trial of Ghislaine Maxwell, Jeffrey Epstein's former girlfriend. 
And with the pandemic, I wonder if even those scheduled trials may not happen because defense lawyers will probably want a full-blown trial and nothing short of that. That's, I think, a question on a lot of litigators' minds. It's a question on a lot of judges' minds because it really does depend on you know, whether or not the parties can agree on a, a different format. And in those high-profile cases, it's just not very likely that you're going to get the parties to agree to a, a virtual trial. A lot of the virtual litigation that we've seen so far is in Texas. It was in a traffic case. You know, it was in a criminal traffic case. Um, you know, in uh, the Western District of Washington, where they did a virtual a jury trial, they, they're only doing them in civil cases. So it, it will definitely be interesting to see how the virus continues to impact some of those larger cases. How have judges been handling the pandemic and what kind of an effect has it had on them personally? For some judges, the pandemic has been really difficult. I, I spoke to Jeremy Fogel, Judge Jeremy Fogel, who is at the Berkeley Judicial Institute. Uh, he used to be a federal judge. He used to be the director of the Federal Judicial Center, which is kind of the education arm of the judiciary. And and he has partnered up with um, another Berkeley professor to present a, a kind of seminar for judges to help them deal with some of the, um, the effects of the pandemic on their well-being. Um, you know, he was explaining that uh, the pandemic has been especially hard for judges because they're already in kind of an isolated position as a judge. You know, you make a lot of your decisions on your own. Uh, the colleagues that you might have been able to share some of the decision-making issues with are now far away from you. Uh, you. You can't go down the hall and talk to them. So our already isolating job got even more isolated during the pandemic. And, you know, judges are, are like everyone else. Um, you know, I spoke to a judge uh, on the appellate court in, in California, and she was telling me that this is, you know, something that judges have been feeling for a while that has been kind of exacerbated by the pandemic, uh, that, you know, it's isolation, but it's also in combination with coronavirus and all of the stress and anxiety that a lot of people have. Um, so this seminar that Judge Fogel is presenting is giving people tips like using meditation or gratitude to kind of deal with some of those emotions that um, I think a lot of people are having right now. And it's just been really hard for judges to kind of adapt their job to that home environment and deal with all of those emotions at the same time. Sometimes people see a judge as someone who's above it all, who doesn't suffer the same kind of problems that the rest of us do. So it's important just to recognize the problems that judges have, especially in this isolation where they don't have colleagues to talk to. And judge wellness was already a focus in some of the circuits. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's so at the, before the pandemic even started, uh, circuits were focusing on this. Uh, at their conferences, they were having seminars on, on wellness and, and well-being. And uh, the pandemic has, has kind of sped up that adoption. It's made people more aware of it. And so this perhaps could be something that we see even more circuits and, and district courts focusing on, and, and even you know state courts as well, um, focusing on how to make sure the members of the judiciary are helping themselves and helping themselves make these decisions. 
Was meditation the main focus of the presentations? You know, I think I think that it was part of it. Um, but one of the judges I talked to who was a uh, participant in the presentation said that gratitude was also a big part of, of the presentation. You know, learning to express gratitude and be grateful for the situation you're in um, and, and kind of recognize the good parts of, of you know, your, your life. And um, I, I think that was also a big part of it. So it's just giving people the tools, I think. And, and it's also kind of a recognition that these judges aren't alone, that other people are feeling the exact same way and that their colleagues are feeling the exact same way. Just to be able to help them, you know, realize that this is a, a normal emotion that they, they can have and, and learn to, to deal with. What really hit me in your story was the loss that many judges have suffered with colleagues dying. And particularly in Georgia, Georgia was really hard hit. Yeah, Georgia lost several judges, um, staff members during the pandemic. And that's just been an added stress on top of on top of everything else is, you know, some judges are still having to go back into the court to do some in-person work. Um, you know, that that hasn't stopped completely uh, to, you know, go back into the court to get one thing done and then do the rest of your work from home. And that can be. That can be scary for a lot of judges, you know, uh, especially if they're in a higher risk category for the virus. And then that's compounded by the fact that some courts have lost staff members. They have lost colleagues. And um, in Georgia, that's been particularly felt. When they lose colleagues, the news of that makes people afraid to come into the courthouse. Right. Um, That was. That was something that we heard from from you know people in Georgia is that people could be scared. Jurors could be potentially scared to come into the courthouse when when they hear about these things. So you know it's another reason why courts are being careful to try to shut down their uh, in person proceedings and halt jury trials if something like this happens because. You don't want to put jurors in in the position of having to come into the courthouse. You know. Someone at the National Center for Courts explained it to me a while ago. Uh, courts aren't nail salons. They're not restaurants. You're not coming into a court voluntarily, typically. And so courts kind of have a unique role in this situation because when they require some, someone to come in, they're really requiring them to come in. So they need to make sure that they are keeping everyone's safety in mind. And that means the judges, that means the staff, and that also means litigants and jurors and and people like that. Thanks so much for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Madison. That's Bloomberg Law reporter Madison Alder. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please listen to the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. 